Psalm number 3. When you get there, say amen. amen. I'll let you know when I get there. Almost there. Bam, I'm there. I got to do one more thing, make sure. Thank you for your grace and your patience in waiting on me. The third number, Psalm, I'm reading out of the NIV, version of God's holy word. Please follow in whatever version you may have. And my Bible reads this way. Psalm number three, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Sounds like bad news. Then transition in verse 3. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake up again, Lord, because, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though ten thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. The word of God for the people of God this morning, will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. And Father, as I attempt to explain your word, I pray, Father God, that you would be exalted in and through it. I pray for the lives of the people here this morning, Lord God, and I pray that you would be their speaker this morning. Your Holy Spirit would be their preacher, Father God, and, and he would instruct them, Lord God, so that their lives would be changed for their good and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Biologists are a group of scientists who study the living organisms of everything in the world. And, and biologists divide every living thing in the world into one of two categories. They say you are either an invertebrate or you are a vertebrate. You either have a backbone or you don't have a backbone. Figure out which of these categories you fit into. Simply, simply touch your back. If you feel a bone there, then me, that means you're a vertebrae. If for some strange reason your wife or somebody else has removed your backbone, then you are an invertebrate. Autonomous, those who study the anatomy of the human body. They too divide everything in the human world into one or two categories. You are either male or female, according to them. To determine which group you fit into, simply go home, remove all your clothes, and look. I didn't say touch. I said look. <laughs> if you have the body parts consistent with that of a man, then you are a male. If you have the body parts consistent with that of a female, then you are a Woman, psychologist, psychology, another branch of science. They, they too divide people into one or two groups, uh, according to psychologists. You are either an optimist or a pessimist. 
An optimist is someone who has an overall positive view of life, someone who embraces the challenges in life because they believe that everything in life will ultimately turn out well. Pessimists, on the other hand, are completely different from optimists. They have an overall negative view of life. They look at life's difficulties and challenges, and they believe that everything in life will turn out badly. Winston Churchill, distinguishing between an optimist and a pessimist, says this. A pessimist seems, sees difficulty in every opportunity, while an optimist seems, sees opportunity in every difficulty. Now, now, the test to determine whether or not you're an optimist or a pessimist is, is a simple one. Psychologists will take a glass and fill it to its midpoint. A pessimist will look at that glass filled to its midpoint, and they will determine that the glass is half empty because it expresses their view of life. An optimist, on the other hand, will look at that same glass filled to its midpoint and determine not that the glass is half empty, but that the glass is half full because that reflects their overall view of life. And I dropped by today this morning to tell you that as a Christian, as someone who believes in God, as someone who embraces all the reality of life that God has for us. When you look at the glass of your life, because you know that God can intervene in your situation, because you know that God can make a positive outcome out of negative situations, when you look at the glass of your life, you always see the glass as being half full. I believe this is the message of Psalm number three, that for the children of God, that for the people of God, whatever situation that they find themselves in, the glass of their life is always half full. Psalm three is a psalm that attaches itself to a definitive context, historical context in the life of David the king. To fully appreciate and, and understand Psalm 3, we first have to examine the situation in life that made David compose this psalm. Psalm 3 tells us that David composed this psalm while he was on the run from his son Absalom. You remember the story, and in case you're not fully aware of the story, I urge you when you get home, read the story as it is narrated in the book of 2 Samuel Verses chapter 15 through verse 19. Let me give you the story. Summarize it briefly. Absalom was David's son. David had another son named Amnon, and David had a daughter named Tamar. Amnon loved Tamar. So in order to be with Tamar, he raped Tamar. And David, because of his own sexual sin, did nothing. When Absalom heard what happened to his sister Tamar, he was living, and he decided to take justice into his own hands. So Absalom arranged to have his brother Amnon killed. Are you still with me? After Absalom killed Amnon, he decided to flee to another territory so that David, his father, could not exact revenge. 
and he was away in exile out of his father's presence and out of his home city, Jerusalem, for approximately three years through scheming and through orchestrating different things. Absalom is able to come back into Jerusalem and through scheming and orchestrating other things, he's able to be embraced by David once again. But Absalom, even though he's embraced by David, he's seemingly playing the role of a devoted son. Absalom is actually conspiring behind David's back. He is trying to be king. He is plotting to take the throne away from David. Are you still with me? He is plotting and scheming to try to take the throne away from David, and eventually, guess what? His plots and his scheme work. The people, unbeknownst to David, make Absalom king. And while Absalom is on his way to Jerusalem, the capital city, David hears about the plot and the coup, and he is able to escape, but just barely. Later on, David will muster the troops, and David will be able to defeat Absalom in a pivotal battle. Absalom will be killed, and David will again regain the throne of Israel. This time, he will hold that position until he dies. Psalm 3 is written not from the perspective of a victorious David, someone who has recaptured the throne of Israel. Rather, Psalm 3 is written from an uncertain David, someone who does not know whether he will ever regain the throne of Israel again. In fact, as David is writing Psalm 3, he doesn't know whether he will live or die. So as such, you hear the pessimism in David's voice as he pins the first two verses of Psalm number two, a Psalm number three. He writes in the first verse. You can hear how, how distraught and, and how much peril and despair he is when he writes, how many are my foes? That term how describes the awe, the amazement that David feels, the shock that he's in. One minute, David is being embraced, being loved, by being adored by all the citizens of Israel. The next minute, David is being run out of town like he's a criminal. One minute, David is in the palace. The next minute, David has to run and, and sleep in caves. And you hear his sentiment, how, how anxious he is from, from these two verses where he says his, his enemies are rising up against him. The, he, he literally, David, feels like the whole world has set up against him. Every time he turns around, there are more and more and more people who are coming up against him. Those people who, who David thought were his friends have now become his enemies. The, the people who he trusted are now those who have conspired against him. And you would think, given the reap, of his predicament that David is a pessimist. In fact, you would think, given the reality of his predicament, that David would despair and be distraught of life. You and I, we both know people who've had to endure half 
of what David had to go through. And they so despaired of life that they took life away from themselves. We've all heard stories of people who life became too much for them, life became too challenging for them, and they said, I'm sick of life. I'm through with it. I was at the exhibition a few years ago of Alexander McQueen. That, may be, that name may be familiar to some of you. Alexander McQueen was this famed British designer. He designed expensive clothes and, and beautiful shoes. He had all the money, all the fame, all the popularity in the world, but yet life was still so big for him that when he endured trouble, he could think of no better way to respond than to take his, his own life. There are people who are going through situations that are half as bad as what David faced, and yet they don't have David's outlook on life. You, you would think, given this backstory to what David is experiencing, the, the next words from David's pen, the next line that David would write would be, Lord, I'm sick of this. Take me, I'm coming home. Or he would say something to the extent, Lord, this is too much for me to handle. Lord, I, I, I can't deal with this anymore. Can, 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 can you just take me home? I'd rather die than be in this situation. But, but, but that's not what David writes for, for whatever reason, for whatever reason. In what could be a psalm of lament, with David just complaining and complaining over and over again, turns into, beginning in verse 3, a psalm of confidence where David expresses his trust in God, where David says to himself that as bad as things are, things are not as bad as they seem. And David's entire perspective in life changes because he decides to make one dramatic step. He decides to take one dramatic step. David could look down in despair. He could look at his situation and find discouragement. Or he could look up at God and trust. And David determines that instead of looking down in despair, instead of looking at his problems and discouragement, that he will look up to God and trust. And every trial you find yourself in, every difficulty that you face, you too face that same situation. You can either determine to look down in despair. You can either determine to look at your situation in discouragement. Or you could look up to God and trust. And my prayer for you this morning is that in all of life's difficulties, you will always look up to God in confidence. And notice, notice what happens when David looks up to God in confidence. It is there when he looks up that he is able to see his situation for what it really is. My situation is not out of control. My situation is not to the point where nothing can be done about it because I have God in my life. God can do something to turn around my entire situation. In verse 3, David begins to express his glass half full perspective on life. In ver beginning in verse 3, he begins to declare his confidence in God by stating the reality 
of who God is. He states the reality of who God is. Beginning in verse 3, David says about God that God is a shield around me. If you have a Bible that you can write in, I want you to underline that phrase, around me. You and I know what a shield is and what it's used for. A shield was part of an ancient warrior's defense. He would hold up a shield and would be able to block the swords and the arrows of enemies of opponents charging right ahead of him. But there is one fatal flaw that came with having a shield. A shield was effective for frontal attacks, but a shield was, was not good in deflecting attacks that came from the rear. A shield could be useful in defending you from attacks that you could see. A shield was not useful in protecting you from attacks that you could not see. And with his situation with Absalom, David was facing an enemy that he never saw coming. Who would think that their own son, who would think that the fruit of their loins, who, who would think that the young man that they raised from birth would be the person to stab him in his back? And if not for the fact that David says God was a shield, where? Around me. David would have gotten stabbed in his back if not for the fact that God can protect you from things that you can see and God can protect you from things that you cannot see. The reality is, not just for David's situation, but for all of our situations, you don't know the people who are close to you plotting against you. You don't know the people at your job who are doing things to hurt you. You don't know the people who may be in your house who are trying to stab you in your back. But the reality is that you have a God who is able to not only see what you see coming, God is able to see and protect you from the things that you don't see coming. In Job chapter 1, we are told of a, of a heavenly meeting where all the sons of God come before God. And, and counted, numbered in that assembly is Satan, the accuser. God has a conversation with Satan. And Satan is looking for someone whose life that he can totally mess up, totally turn around. And, and God, for whatever reason, points out Job. He tells the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He, he's setting Job up for his downfall. But, but you remember what, what Satan said to God when God mentioned Job? He said, I can't touch Job because you have a hedge all around him. Y'all just missed your shouting point right there. <laughs> I'm going to go to this side over here. Remember what, what, what Satan told God? I can't touch Job because you have a hedge all around. Aren't you glad this morning that God can offer you comprehensive protection, that he can protect you from the things you see coming, and he can protect you from the things that you don't see coming, that he can put a hedge of protection around your family, 
around your finances, around everything you value in life, God can be a shield all around you. David declares his confidence in God's ability to, to protect him physically. But David also expresses his confidence in God's ability to protect him comprehensively. David says that it is God who is his glory. The term glory, when used of people, refers to that which gives us esteem, that which makes us respectable, that which we place our confidence in. The term glory refers to our self-worth. And it's amazing that David can say he even has self-esteem and self-worth given everything he's been through. Again, the, the context of this story, of this psalm, becomes extremely important. David is writing this psalm, most likely, from a cave while he is barefoot and almost naked. There's a reason for that. When David escaped Jerusalem, he had to pack up all of his bags so quickly that the Bible tells us that David didn't even have time to put shoes on. And he had to muster all the people who are still loyal to him. And they are walking out of the palace that David built, out of the city that he built. And while this is going on, all the citizens of Jerusalem are looking at David as he takes what literally is a walk of shame. And to add insult to insult, read your Bibles, there's a man named Shimei there who is cursing at David as David flees the city. David, in the span of just a few hours, has lost everything that you and I value. He's lost his house, he's lost his clothes, he's lost his money, he's lost his shoes, he's lost his friends, he's even lost his girlfriends. They said David had to leave his concubines behind. And Absalom, as a sign that he is the new king, would sleep with David's girlfriends, his concubines, just to add insult to more insult. To fully appreciate this, if we would take a modern spin on things, imagine if, if you came to your house one day, the house that you paid for, the house that you pay the bills in, and you find all your clothes and all your shoes out in the front lawn. You peek in the window, and you see your children calling some other man daddy, <laughs> and your wife sitting on his lap giving him kisses. <laughs> and you knock on the door, and you ask what's going on here, and the man answers it wearing your clothes saying, there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> Imagine how embarrassing that would be as your neighbors see you on the front lawn looking all sad. Imagine how insulting that would be as you have to walk out of your house knowing that someone else has taken everything that you worked and you built. But as David is doing this walk of shame, as David is in a cave hiding, David says, my head is not held low because my glory, my sense of self-worth, my self-esteem was never in the palace to begin with. My glory, my self-esteem, my sense of self-worth was never in 
the clothes that I had to begin with. My glory, my self-esteem, my, my sense of self-worth was never in the people who served me. My glory, my sense of self-worth, my self-esteem was never in people. It was always in God. David is able to say, despite the fact that I've lost everything, I still keep my head up high because my glory was not in who I am, but my glory was in whose I am. Could you make that confession this morning, our house, that if you lost everything, if your bank account read zero, 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 if you no longer had designer clothes or designer shoes to put on, if you lost everything that you worked for, that you wouldn't be embarrassed or insulted, that you'd still hold your head up high because your glory is not in things, but your glory is in the fact that God's word says that he has made you fearfully and wonderfully made, that your glory is not in what you have or who you are, but your glory is in whose you are. So regardless of what life sends your way, you'll still be able to walk high and proud, knowing that you still serve a God <laughs> who is able to do incredible things. I, I once knew a woman who, who resembled this who expressed this more than any woman I've ever met in my life. I used to call her Miss Parker. She went to my home church. I called her Miss Parker. Y'all remember Friday from... The first, the first service, I only got one laugh, too. She'd walk by in church, and I'd be like, How you doing, Miss Parker? She had no clue what I was talking about. She absolutely had it, had it going on from head to toe. I mean, she, she, she would come dressed in, in everything named brand, down from her hat all the way to her shoes, and she used to walk in church like, oh, just looking so, so good. And, and I also remember that when she would walk in church, she would walk down the center aisle. She wasn't trying to show off or anything like that. That's just the type of woman she was. She would sit in the front seat. And, and, and then when the praise and worship started, she, she would go absolutely in. The music was starting, she'd be like, because ah, 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 ah. she, just, she just had this spirit of worship around her. I mean, she was just an incredible woman. Something happened to Miss Parker. That's not her real name. That's what I called her, by the way. I, I didn't see her for about three months. Uh, one Sunday, I asked, you know, what, what happened to her, and I found out she had she had breast cancer. After about three months, she, she returned from the breast cancer surgery, from the chemotherapy, and, 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 and you can definitely tell that, that she was not the same woman. You know, she, she had lost all her hair from the chemotherapy. You know, she, she had on a nice dress, and, and I looked at the dress closely, you know, not, not but, but I noticed that, that her, one of her breasts were, were just manifestly depressed on one side. I later found out that they, they had to, what they call that, a mastectomy? They had to cut off the breast to remove the cancer. She was not that same beautiful, attractive woman that, that I remember. But yet as she walked in church, her head was held up high. She walked down the middle aisle. 
sat in the same seat that she used to sit in. And when the music came on, she was... You don't get that way if your glory is in your clothes. You, you, you don't get that way if your glory is in how much money you have in a bank account. You, you, you don't get that way if your glory is in how you look. The only way you get that way, when life throws everything at you that it possibly can, and yet you still hold your head up high, is if your glory is in God. David says that despite everything that has happened to me, I'm not going to be depressed. I'm not going to be discouraged. I'm going to hold my head up high because my glory is not in things, but my glory is in God. David declares that God is able to protect him physically and mentally. And David declares that God is able to, to vindicate him completely. David says in verse 3 again, you, you are my glory and you are the lifter of my head. That expression, lifter of my head, probably refers to a legal decision in the ancient world. Kings would be the judges of a territory and a king would render his verdict. If a person was guilty, he would bow the person's head. If a person was innocent, the king would lift the person's head as a sign of vindication. And notice what David says, that it is God who is going to be the person who ultimately vindicates him because it is God who is going to be the person who, who lifts up his head. This tells us something about the nature of the human-divine relationship. Since God is the one who lifts up your head, then God is the only person who's qualified to judge you. Nobody else in the world can make a determination about you. Nobody else in the world can pronounce a verdict of who you are. Only God, who lifts up your head, is able to vindicate you. Only God is able to judge you. David says, expresses his confidence in God's ability to protect him completely. And then, beginning in verse 5, David expresses his confidence so much in God's ability to protect him completely. David says that I have no alternative but what to rest. You know what's the difference between sleep-deprived people and people who can go to sleep? People who go to sleep trust that their problems will be taken care of. Think about it. When have you in your life been sleep-deprived? When you're worried about bills, when you're worried about medical condition, when you're worried about a job, when, when, when you're worried, it's worry, it's anxiety that keeps us from going to sleep. You, you see children, babies especially. Babies have no anxiety, they have no trouble, they have no worry, yet, and that enables them to sleep as soundfully and as peacefully as they do. Uh, imagine what would happen how often a baby would be up if a baby had to worry about where his next infamil bottle would come from. <laughs> Imagine how restless a baby would be if a baby had to worry about who's going to buy 
his next diaper, pair of diapers. Imagine, and, and some of you who have children, y'all know how expensive having babies are. Infamil is not cheap. Diapers is not cheap. Uh, uh, imagine if a baby was up walking around pacing. Where my next pamphlet's gonna come from? <laughs> Mama lost her job. Oh. <laughs> but babies don't worry about things. But there, there's a reason that babies don't worry. It's not because babies don't have troubles. Babies do ha have troubles. Babies don't worry because they trust that somebody else is going to take care of their troubles. Baby, don't worry about where their infamil is going to come from because they believe mama got it. They don't worry about where the next diaper is going to come from because they believe daddy got it. And that's what perspective you and I need to have on life if we are going to sleep like David. It's not that we don't have troubles, but that we trust that somebody else can take care of our troubles. David has troubles in normity in multitude. But David says that I'm not going to worry about my troubles. I'm gonna, not going to let my troubles keep me up at night because I believe my daddy, my God, is able to take care of my troubles. David is so confident in God's ability to take care of his trouble. Look at what he says in verse 5. I lay down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. Ultimately, your job doesn't sustain you, so you don't need to worry about your lack thereof and let that keep you up at night. Ultimately, it is not how much money in the bank that you have that sustains you, so you don't need to worry or not go to sleep at night because you don't have enough of it in the bank. Ultimately, it is God who sustains you. And if God sustains you, then you can be like David, and you can, in the face of trouble, sleep like a baby, knowing that your daddy can take care of it. Can I show you one more thing and then I promise to sit down? David, in verse 8, says that, the Lord, that from the Lord comes deliverance. That phrase is an, a phrase of absolution. It's a phrase of exclusivity. What David is saying is that from only God comes deliverance. David has so much confidence in God that he believes that there's no obstacle too great for God to rescue him from. He is facing a whole army of Israel. The whole army of Israel is up against him. But David says, I have God on my side, and God is able to rescue me and deliver me completely. I read a story recently of an interesting man. His name was Franco Selig, and he lived a life of peril to the extent that it was the front page of a major magazine. Let me tell you Franco's story. Franco, in 1979, he, he got his first car, and while he was driving it, his fuel tank burst into flames, and he jumped out the car before the car exploded. He was on a plane, his first flight, flying from his hometown to a, a, a country no more than 100 miles away. The plane crashed killed 19 people. Franco was the only one who survived. 
He was on a train, his first train ride. The train fell off the tracks. It fell into a river. Five people drowned. Franco was the first one rescued. In 1995, while crossing the street, he was hit by a bus. In 1996, while driving through the mountains, he turned the corner to see a UN truck coming straight towards him. He swerved, car truck barely missed him. Franco's car passed the barrier, and he jumped out just in time before his car crashed down 300-foot slope and exploded. And not only that, Franco was able to survive a total of almost 20 life-defying perils. The newspaper, the magazine I read, finally heard about his story, and they decided to interview him. On the first page of their magazine was Saved Again, the, the story of Franco Zeeland. And when they asked him, Franco, how were you able to escape all the things that you went through? Franco said, you know what? I don't really know. Our how, that can never be your testimony. Because you do know how you were able to escape out of all the life-threatening situations that you were in. You do know how you were able to be saved from some of the positions that you put yourself in. You do know why you're still alive today. And it's not because you were smarter than anybody else. It's not because you were better than anybody else. And it's not because you were able to rescue yourself. Your testimony, unlike Franco's, should be this. If it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I be? You do know you do know that it was the Lord who delivered you. You do know that it was God who saved you. You do know it was God who rescued you. So every day of your life, you should spend worshiping and praising the God from whom only him come deliverance. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your power to save. And Father, in this sanctuary this morning, Lord, we pray that you would Exercise your power and rescue certain someone from whatever situation that they're facing, Lord God. Whether it's spiritual peril, Father God, we pray that you would save. Whether it's financial peril, Father right, God, right now, we pray that you would save. Whether it is marital peril right now, Father God, we, we pray that you would save. Whatever injury, whatever peril they face, Father, because you are mighty to save, we pray that you would exercise your power right here and right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.